Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tonight. I continue the story, The Princess and the Goblin, by George MacDonald. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 11, The Old Lady's Bedroom Nothing more happened worth telling for some time. The autumn came and went by. There were no more flowers in the garden. The wind blew strong and howled among the rocks. The rain fell and drenched the few yellow and red leaves that could not get off the bare branches. Again and again, there would be a glorious morning followed by a pouring afternoon. And sometimes, for a week together, there would be rain, nothing but rain all day. And then the most lovely cloudless night 
the sky all out in full-blown stars, not one missing. But the princess could not see much of them, for she went to bed early. The winter drew on, and she found things growing dreary. When it was too stormy to go out, and she had got tired of her toys, Lutie would take her about the house, sometimes to the housekeeper's room, where the housekeeper, who was a good, kind old woman, made much of her, sometimes to the servant's hall or the kitchen, where she was not princess merely, but absolute queen, and ran a great risk of being spoiled. Sometimes she would run off herself to the room where the men-at-arms, whom the king had left, sat, and they showed her their arms and accoutrements, and did what they could to amuse her. Still at times, she found it very dreary, and often and often wished that her huge great-grandmother had not been a dream. One morning, the nurse left her with the housekeeper for a while. To amuse her, she turned out the contents of an old cabinet upon the table. The little princess found her treasures, strange ancient ornaments, and many things the use of which she could not imagine, far more interesting than her own toys, and sat playing with them for two hours or more. But at length, in handling a curious old-fashioned brooch, she ran the pin of it into her thumb and gave a little scream with the sharpness of the pain, but would have thought little more of it had not the pain increased and her thumb began to swell. This alarmed the housekeeper greatly. The nurse was fetched, the doctor was sent for, her hand was poulticed, and long before her usual time she was put to bed. The pain still continued, and although she fell asleep and dreamed a good many dreams, there was the pain always in every dream. At last, it woke her up. The moon was shining brightly into the room. The poultice had fallen off her hand and was burning hot. She fancied if she could hold it into the moonlight, that would cool it. So she got out of bed without waking the nurse who lay at the other end of the room and went to the window. When she looked out, she saw one of the men-at-arms walking in the garden with the moonlight glancing on his armor. She was just going to tap on the window and call him, for she wanted to tell him all about it, when she bethought herself that that might wake Lutie and she would put her into bed again. So she resolved to go to the window of another room and call him from there. It was so much nicer to have somebody to talk to than to lie awake in bed with a burning pain in her hand. She opened the door gently and went through the nursery, which did not look into the garden, to go to the other window. But when she came to the foot of the old staircase, there was the moon shining down from some window up high, and making the worm-eaten oak look very strange and delicate and lovely. In a moment, she was putting her little feet one after the other in the silvery path up the stair, looking behind as she went to see the shadow they made in the middle of the silver. Some little girls would have been afraid to find themselves thus alone in the middle of the night, but Irene was a princess. As she went slowly up the stair, not quite sure that she was not dreaming, suddenly a great longing woke up in her heart to try once more whether she could not find the old lady with the silvery hair. If she is a dream, she said to herself, then I am the likelier to find her if I am dreaming. So up and up she went, stair after stair, until she came to the many rooms all just as she had seen them before. Through passage after passage, she softly sped, comforting herself that 
If she should lose her way, it would not matter much, because when she woke, she would find herself in her own bed with Lutie not far off. But, as if she had known every step of the way, she walked straight to the door at the foot of the narrow stair that led to the tower. What if I should, real reality, really, find my beautiful old grandmother up there, she said to herself, as she crept up the steep steps. When she reached the top, she stood a moment listening in the dark, for there was no moon there. Yes, it was. It was the hum of the spinning wheel. What a diligent grandmother to work both day and night. She tapped gently at the door. Come in, Irene, said the sweet voice. The princess opened the door and entered. There was the moonlight streaming in at the window, and in the middle of the moonlight sat the old lady in her black dress with a white lace and her silvery hair mingling with the moonlight so that you could not have told which was which. Come in, Irene, she said again. Can you tell me what I'm spinning? She speaks, thought Irene, just as if she had seen me five minutes ago, or yesterday at the farthest. No, she answered. I don't know what you're spinning. Please, I thought you were a dream. Why couldn't I find you before, great-great-grandmother? That you are hardly old enough to understand. But you would have found me sooner if you hadn't come to think I was a dream. I will give you one reason, though, why you couldn't find me. I didn't want you to find me. Why, please? Because I did not want Lutie to know I was here. But you told me to tell Lutie. Yes. But I knew Lutie would not believe you. If she were to see me, sitting, spinning here, she wouldn't believe me either. Why? Because she couldn't. She would rub her eyes and go away and say she felt strange and forget half of it and more and then say it had been all a dream. Just like me, said Irene, feeling very much ashamed of herself. Yes, a good deal like you, but not just like you, for you've come again, and Lutie wouldn't have come again. She would have said, no, no, she had had enough of such nonsense. Is it naughty of Lutie then? It would be naughty of you. I've never done anything for Lutie. And you did wash my face and hands for me, said Irene, beginning to cry. The old lady smiled a sweet smile and said, I'm not vexed with you, my child, nor with Lutie either. But I don't want you to say anything more to Lutie about me. If she should ask you, you must be silent. But I don't think she will ask you. All the time they talked, the old lady kept on spinning. You haven't told me yet what I'm spinning, she said. Because I don't know. It's very pretty stuff. It was indeed very pretty stuff. There was a good bunch of it on the distaff attached to the spinning wheel. And in the moonlight it shone. What shall I say it was like? It was not white enough for silver. Yes, it was like silver. But shone grey rather than white and glittered only a little. And the thread the old lady drew out from it was so fine that Irene could hardly see it. I'm spinning this for you, my child. For me? What am I to do with it, please? I will tell you, by and by. But first, I will tell you what it is. It is a spider web of a particular kind. 
My pigeons bring it to me from over the great sea. There's only one forest where the spiders live who make this particular kind, the finest and strongest of any. I have nearly finished my present job. What is on the rock now will be enough. I have a week's work there yet, though, she added, looking at the bunch. Do you work all day and all night too, great-great-great-great-grandmother, said the princess, thinking to be very polite with so many greats. I'm not quite so great as all that, she answered, smiling almost merrily. If you call me grandmother, that will do. No, I don't work every night, only moonlit nights, and then no longer than the moon shines upon my wheel. I shan't work much longer tonight. And what will you do next, grandmother? Go to bed. Would you like to see my room? Yes, that I should. Then I think I won't work any longer tonight. I shall be in good time. The old lady rose and left her wheel standing just as it was. You see, there was no good in putting it away, for where there was not any furniture, there was no danger of being untidy. Then she took Irene by the hand, but it was her bad hand, and Irene gave a little cry of pain. My child, said her grandmother, what is the matter? Irene held her hand into the moonlight that the old lady might see it, and told her all about it, at which she looked grave. But she only said, Give me your other hand, and having led her out upon the little dark landing, opened the door on the opposite side of it. What was Irene surprised to see the loveliest room she had ever seen in her life? It was large and lofty and dome-shaped. From the centre hung a lamp as round as a ball, shining as if with the brightest moonlight, which made everything visible in the room, though not so clearly that the princess could tell what many of the things were. A large oval bed stood in the middle, with a coverlid of rose colour, and velvet curtains all round it of a lovely pale blue. The walls were also blue, spangled all over with what looked like stars of silver. The old lady left her, and, going to a strange-looking cabinet, opened it and took out a curious silver box. Then she sat down on a low chair and, calling Irene, made her kneel before her while she looked at her hand. Having examined it, she opened the box and took from it a little ointment. The sweetest odour filled the room, like that of roses and lilies, as she rubbed the ointment gently all over the hot, swollen hand. Her touch was so pleasant and cool that it seemed to drive away the pain and heat wherever it came. Oh, grandmother, it is so nice, said Irene. Thank you, thank you. Then the old lady went to a chest of drawers and took out a large handkerchief of gossamer-like cambric which she tied round the hand. I don't think I can let you go away tonight, she said. Would you like to stay with me? Oh, yes, yes, dear grandmother, said Irene. I would have clapped her hands, forgetting that she could not. You won't be afraid, then, to stay with such an old woman? No. You are so beautiful, grandmother. But I am very old. And I suppose I am very young. You wouldn't mind staying with such a very young woman, grandmother? You sweet little pertness, said the old lady, and drew her towards her and kissed her on the forehead. Then she got a large silver basin, and having poured some water into it, made Irene sit on the chair and washed her feet. 
This done, she was ready for bed. And oh, what a delicious bed it was. She could hardly have told she was lying upon anything. She felt nothing but the softness. Why don't you put out your moon? asked the princess. That never goes out, night or day, she answered. In the darkest night, if any of my pigeons are out on a message, they always see my moon and know where to fly to. But if somebody besides the pigeons were to see it, somebody about the house, I mean, they would come to look what it was and find you. The better for them, then, said the old lady. But it does not happen above five times in a hundred years that anyone does see it. The greater part of those who do take it for a meteor, wink their eyes and forget it again. Besides, nobody could find the room except I pleased. Besides again, I will tell you a secret. If that light were to go out, you would fancy yourself lying in a bare garret on a heap of old straw and would not see one of the pleasant things around you. I hope it will never go out, said the princess. I hope not. But it is time to sleep. Oh dear, this is so nice, said the princess. I didn't know anything in the world could be so comfortable. I should like to lie here forever. You may, if you will, said the old lady. But I must put you to one trial. Not a very hard one, I hope. This night week, you must come back to me. If you don't, I do not know when you may find me again, and you will soon want me very much. Oh, please don't let me forget. You shall not forget. The only question is whether you will believe I am anywhere, whether you will believe I am anything but a dream. You may be sure I will do all I can to help you to come, but it will rest with yourself after all. On the night of next Friday, you must come to me, mind now. I will try, said the princess. Then good night, said the old lady, and kissed her forehead. In a moment more, the little princess was dreaming in the midst of the loveliest dreams of summer seas and moonlight and mossy springs and great murmuring trees and beds of wild flowers with such odors as she had never smelled before. But after all, no dream could be more lovely than what she had left behind when she fell asleep. In the morning, she found herself in her own bed. There was no handkerchief or anything else in her hand, only a sweet odour lingered about it. The swelling had all gone down, the prick of the brooch had vanished. In fact, her hand was perfectly well. Chapter 12 A Short Chapter About Curdie Curdie spent many nights in the mine. His father and he had taken Mrs. Peterson into the secret, for they knew mother could hold her tongue, which was more than could be said of all the miners' wives. But Curdie did not tell her that every night he spent in the mine. Part of it went in earning a new red petticoat for her. Mrs. Peterson was such a nice, good mother. All mothers are nice and good, more or less, but Mrs. Peterson was nice and good, all more and no less. She made and kept a little heaven in that poor cottage on the high hillside for her husband and son to go home to out of the low and rather dreary earth in which they worked. I doubt if the princess was very much happier even in the arms of her huge great-grandmother than Peter and Curdie were in the arms of Mrs. Peterson. True, 
Her hands were hard and chapped and large. But it was with work for them, and therefore, in the sight of the angels, her hands were so much the more beautiful. And if Curdie worked hard to get her a petticoat, she worked hard every day to get him comforts which he would have missed much more than she would a new petticoat even in winter. Not that she and Curdie ever thought of how much they worked for each other. That would have spoiled everything. When left alone in the mine, Curdie always worked on for an hour or two at first, following the load which, according to Glump, would lead at last into the deserted habitation. After that, he was set out on a reconnoitering expedition. In order to manage this, or rather the return from it, better than the first time, he had bought a huge ball of fine string, having learned the trick from Hop of My Thumb, whose history his mother had often told him. Not that Hop of My Thumb had ever used a ball of string, I should be sorry to be supposed so far out in my classics, but the principle was the same as that of the pebbles. The end of the string he fastened to his pickaxe, which figured no bad anchor, and then, with the ball in his hand, unrolling it as he went, set out in the dark through the natural gangs of the goblin's territory. The first night or two he came upon nothing worth remembering, saw only a little of the home life of the cobs in the various caves they called houses, failed in coming upon anything to cast light upon the foregoing design which kept the inundation for the present in the background. But at length, I think on the third or fourth night he found, partly guided by the noise of their implements, a company of evidently the best sappers and miners amongst them, hard at work. What were they about? It could not well be the inundation, seeing that it had in the meantime been postponed to something else. Then what was it? He lurked and watched, every now and then in the greatest risk of being detected, but without success. He had again and again to retreat in haste, a proceeding rendered the more difficult that he had to gather up his string as he returned upon its course. It was not that he was afraid of the goblins, but that he was afraid of their finding out that they were watched, which might have prevented the discovery at which he aimed. Sometimes his haste had to be such that, when he reached home towards morning, his string, for the lack of time to wind it up as he dodged the cobs, would be in a what seemed most hopeless tangle. But after a good sleep, though a short one, he always found his mother had got it right again. There it was, wound in a most respectable bowl, ready for use the moment he should want it. I can't think how you do it, mother, he would say. I follow the thread, she would answer, just as you do in the mine. She never had more to say about it, for the less clever she was with her words, the more clever she was with her hands, and the less, his mother said, the more Curdie believed she had to say. But still, he had made no discovery as to what the goblin miners were about. Chapter 13 The Cobb's Creatures About this time, the gentleman whom the king had left behind him to watch over the princess had each occasion to doubt the testimony of his own eyes, for more than strange were the objects to which they would bear witness. They were of one sort, creatures, but so grotesque and misshapen as to be more like a child's drawings upon his slate than anything natural. They saw them only at night while on guard about the house. 
The testimony of the man who first reported having seen one of them was that, as he was walking slowly round the house, while yet in the shadow, he caught sight of a creature standing on its hind legs in the moonlight, with its forefeet upon a window ledge, staring in at the window. Its body might have been that of a dog or wolf, he thought, but he declared on his honour that its head was twice the size it ought to have been for the size of its body, and as round as a ball, while the face, which it turned upon him as it fled, was more like one carved by a boy upon the turnip inside which he was going to place a candle than anything else he could think of. It rushed into the garden. He sent an arrow after it and thought he must have struck it, for it gave an unearthly howl, and he could not find his arrow any more than the beast, although he searched all about the place where it vanished. They laughed at him until he was driven to hold his tongue and said he must have taken too long a pull at the ale jug. But before two nights were over, he had one to side with him, for he too had seen something strange, only quite different from that reported by the other. The description the second man gave of the creature he had seen was yet more grotesque and unlikely. They were both laughed at by the rest, but night after night, another came over to their side, until at last, there was only one left to laugh at all his companions. Two nights more were passed, and he saw nothing. But on the third, he came rushing from the garden to the other two before the house, in such an agitation that they declared, for it was their turn now, that the band of his helmet was cracking under his chin with the rising of his hair inside it. Running with him into that part of the garden, which I have already described, they saw a score of creatures, to not one of which they could give a name, and not one of which was like another, hideous and ludicrous at once, gambling on the lawn in the moonlight. The supernatural, or rather subnatural ugliness of their faces, the length of legs and necks in some, the apparent absence of both or either in others, made the spectators, although in one consent as to what they saw, yet doubtful, as I have said, of the evidence of their own eyes, and ears as well. For the noises they made, although not loud, were as uncouth and varied as their forms, and could be described neither as grunts, nor squeaks, nor roars, nor howls, nor barks, nor yells, nor screams, nor croaks, nor hisses, nor mews, nor shrieks, but only as something like all of them mingled in one horrible dissonance. Keeping in the shade, the watchers had a few moments to recover themselves before the hideous assembly suspected their presence. But all at once, as if by common consent, they scampered off in the direction of a great rock and vanished before the men had come to themselves sufficiently to think of following them. My readers will suspect what these were, but I will now give them full information concerning them. They were, of course, household animals belonging to the goblins, whose ancestors had taken their ancestors many centuries before from the upper regions of light into the lower regions of darkness. The original stocks of these horrible creatures were very much the same as the animals now seen about farms and homes in the country, with the exception of a few of them, which had been wild creatures such as foxes and indeed wolves and small bears, which the goblins, from their proclivity towards the animal creation, had caught when cubs and tamed. 
but in the course of time, all had undergone even greater changes than had passed upon their owners. They had altered, that is, their descendants had altered, into creatures such as I have not attempted to describe, except in the vaguest manner. The various parts of their bodies assuming, in an apparently arbitrary and self-willed manner, the most abnormal developments. Indeed, so little did any distinct type predominate in some of the bewildering results that you could only have guessed at any known animal as the original. And even then, what likeness remained would be more one of general expression than of definable confirmation. But what increased the gruesomeness tenfold was that, from constant domestic or indeed rather family association with the goblins, their countenances had grown in grotesque resemblance to the human. No one understands animals who does not see that every one of them, even amongst the fishes, it may be with a dimness and vagueness infinitely remote, yet shadows the human. In the case of these, the human resemblance had greatly increased. While their owners had sunk towards them, they had risen towards their owners. But the conditions of subterranean life being equally unnatural for both, while the goblins were worse, the creatures had not improved by the approximation, and its results would have appeared far more ludicrous than consoling to the warmest lover of animal nature. I shall now explain how it was that, just then, these animals began to show themselves about the king's country house. The goblins, as Curdie had discovered, were mining on, at work both day and night in divisions, urging the scheme after which he lay in wait. In the course of their tunneling, they had broken into the channel of a small stream, but the break being in the top of it, no water had escaped to interfere with their work. Some of the creatures, hovering as they often did about their masters, had found the hole, and had, with a curiosity which had grown to a passion from the restraints of their unnatural circumstances, proceeded to explore the channel. The stream was the same which ran out by the seat on which Irene and her king papa had sat, as I have told, and the goblin creatures found it jolly fun to get out for a romp on a smooth lawn such as they had never seen in all their poor miserable lives. But although they had partaken enough of the nature of their owners to delight in annoying and alarming any of the people whom they met on the mountain, they were, of course, incapable of designs of their own or of intentionally furthering those of their masters. For several nights, after the men-at-arms were at length of one mind as to the fact of the visits of some horrible creatures, whether bodily or spectral, they could not yet say, they watched with special attention that part of the garden where they had last seen them. Perhaps, indeed, they gave in consequence too little attention to the house but the creatures were too cunning to be easily caught, nor were the watchers quick-eyed enough to descry the head or the keen eyes in it, which, from the opening whence the stream issued, would watch them in turn, ready, the moment they should leave the lawn, to report the place clear. Chapter 14 That Night Week During the whole of the week, Irene had been thinking, every other moment of her promise to the old lady, although even now she could not feel quite sure that she had not been dreaming. Could it really be that an old lady lived up in the top of the house with pigeons and a spinning wheel and a lamp that never went out? 
She was, however, nonetheless determined on the coming Friday to ascend the three stairs, walk through the passages with the many doors, and try to find the tower in which she had either seen or dreamed her grandmother. Her nurse could not help wondering what had come to the child. She would sit so thoughtfully silent, and even in the midst of a game with her would so suddenly fall into a dreamy mood. But Irene took care to betray nothing, whatever efforts Luti might make to get at her thoughts. And Luti had to say to herself, what an odd child she is, and give it up. At length, the longed-for Friday arrived, and lest Luti should be moved to watch her, Irene endeavoured to keep herself as quiet as possible. In the afternoon, she asked for her doll's house and went on arranging and rearranging the various rooms and their inhabitants for a whole hour. Then she gave a sigh and threw herself back in her chair. One of the dolls would not sit, and another would not stand, and they were all very tiresome. Indeed, there was one who would not even lie down, which was too bad. But it was now getting dark, and the darker it got, the more excited Irene became, and the more she felt it necessary to be composed. I see you want your tea, princess, said the nurse. I will go get it. The room feels close. I will open the window a little. The evening is mild. It won't hurt you. There's no fear of that, Luti, said Irene, wishing she had put off going for the tea till it was darker, when she might have made her attempt with every advantage. I fancy Luti was longer in returning than she had intended, for when Irene, who had been lost in thought, looked up, she saw it was nearly dark, and at the same moment caught sight of a pair of eyes, bright with a green light, glowering at her through the open window. The next instant, something leaped into the room. It was like a cat, with legs as long as a horse's, Irene said, but its body no bigger and its legs no thicker than those of a cat. She was too frightened to cry out, but not too frightened to jump from her chair and run from the room. It is plain enough to every one of my readers what she ought to have done, and indeed, Irene thought of it herself. But when she came to the foot of the old stair, just outside the nursery door, she imagined the creature running up those long ascents after her and pursuing her through the dark passages, which, after all, might lead to no tower. That thought was too much. Her heart failed her, and turning from the stair, she rushed along to the hall, whence, finding the front door open, she darted into the court pursued, at least she thought so, by the creature. No one happening to see her, on she ran, unable to think for fear, and ready to run anywhere to elude the awful creature with the stilt legs. Not daring to look behind her, she rushed straight out of the gate and up the mountain. It was foolish indeed, thus to run further and further from all who could help her, as if she had been seeking a fit spot for the goblin creature to eat her in his leisure. That is the way fear serves us. It always sides with the thing we are afraid of. The princess was soon out of breath with running uphill, but she ran on, for she fancied the horrible creature just behind her, forgetting that, had it been after her, such long legs as those must have overtaken her long ago. At last, she could run no longer, and fell, unable even to scream by the roadside, where she lay for some time half dead with terror. But finding nothing lay hold of her, and her breath beginning to come back, she ventured at length to get half up and peer anxiously about her. It was now so dark she could see nothing. Not a single star was out. She could not even tell what direction the house lay, 
and between her and home, she fancied the dreadful creature lying ready to pounce upon her. She saw now that she ought to have run up the stairs at once. It was well she did not scream, for, although very few of the goblins had come out for weeks, a stray idler too might have heard her. She sat down upon a stone, and nobody but one who had done something wrong could have been more miserable. She had quite forgotten her promise to visit her grandmother. A raindrop fell on her face. She looked up, and for a moment her terror was lost in astonishment. At first, she thought the rising moon had left her place and drawn nigh to see what could be the matter with the little girl, sitting alone, without hat or cloak, on the dark bare mountain. But she soon saw she was mistaken, for there was no light on the ground at her feet and no shadow anywhere. But a great silver globe was hanging in the air, and as she gazed at the lovely thing, her courage revived. If she were but indoors again, she would fear nothing, not even the terrible creature with the long legs. But how was she to find her way back? What could that light be? Could it be? No, it couldn't. But what if it should be? Yes, it must be. Her great-great-grandmother's lamp, which guided her pigeons home through the darkest night. She jumped up. She had but to keep that light in view, as she must find the house. Her heart grew strong. Speedily, yet softly, she walked down the hill, hoping to pass the watching creature unseen. Dark as it was, there was little danger now of choosing the wrong road. And, which was most strange, the light that filled her eyes from the lamp, instead of blinding them for a moment to the object upon which they next fell, enabled her for a moment to see it, despite the darkness. By looking at the lamp and then dropping her eyes, she could see the road for a yard or two in front of her, and this saved her from several falls, for the road was very rough. But all at once, to her dismay, it vanished, and the terror of the beast, which had left her the moment she began to return, again laid hold of her heart. The same instant, however, she caught the light of the windows and knew exactly where she was. It was too dark to run, but she made what haste she could and reached the gate in safety. She found the house door still open, ran through the hall, and, without even looking into the nursery, bounded straight up the stair, and the next, and the next, and then turning to the right, ran through the long avenue of silent rooms, and found her way at once to the door at the foot of the tower stair. When first the nurse missed her, she fancied she was playing her a trick, and for some time took no trouble about her. But at last, getting frightened, she had begun to search. And when the princess entered, the whole household was hither and thither over the house hunting for her. A few seconds after she had reached the stair of the tower, they had even begun to search the neglected rooms, in which they would never have thought of looking had they not already searched every other place they could think of in vain. But by this time, she was knocking at the old lady's door. Good night.